Hope you had a big breakfast. We have a lot of work to do this morning. We are continuing in the series that Pastor Matt kicked us off with last week called Life in Exile, a four-part series. We saw last week that really the entire story of humanity is the story of exile. Since Adam and Eve were sinned and were, were banned from the garden, humanity has lived exiled from God's presence, but Christians have been brought back home, in a sense, adopted back into God's family. We now have an entirely different citizenship from this world. This world is no longer our home, but yet we live in between the first and the second coming of Christ, which means we now live life in exile. Now, for much of church history, honestly, and for most places in the world, this reality has been obvious because Christians have often lived on the margins, lived in the minority, been pushed out of the seats of power and influence. But for a long time in the West, Christianity was a central part of our culture. And so the reality of our exile has been less obvious to us. And many living in the modern era of Christendom operated under the myth that maybe this really was our home. Maybe we really could settle in and be comfortable and, and be at home here. But the reality is that no matter what country, no matter what period of history, no matter the strength of the church, Christians are in exile As Pastor Matt said last week, this world is not our home, and it never was. What what is exile? We've all heard of exiles in regards to earthly nations, right? An exile is, is driven out against her will from her home country, forced to live in a foreign country. The exile is, is not a citizen of that country, but she's also not a traveler. She's not just visiting or a, she's not a tourist. She is really living in the country as a resident. As a foreigner, right? A resident alien. To be in exile means you are living somewhere that is not your true home. All exiles in this condition experience a sense of alienation, of not belonging. The Jews experienced exile in Babylon. We're going to look at their situation next week and talk about the parallels. Of course, we're talking about a spiritual reality of exile, right? And and it means that no matter how good life is, no matter how pleasant life is in our host country, we are exiles and we will never fully belong. We will never fully fit in this world. Now, with all the changes that have been happening in American society in the last few years, our status as exiles has become more obvious. But in reality, the eroding of cultural Christianity, the era of Christendom, has been in decline For the last 75 years. Many historians will tell you that by the end of World War II, a major cultural shift was occurring. The Age of Enlightenment had brought the modern era in the West, the reliance upon science and reason and technology, and these things were society's hope for prosperity, for peace, for happiness. But the destruction that the the two great wars brought in the first half of the 19th century brought this delusionment. And eroded the hope that these modern concepts would lead to the kind of cultural revolution that they had hoped for. And instead, it led to the cultural revolution of the 1960s. And following the 60s, sociologists now say that we are in the postmodern era, which has brought the rejection of authority, the rise of moral relativism, of secularism, of individualism, of pluralism. And and this sort of vague spirituality that has become the accepted norm. But here is the problem. Here is why this, this historical overview has been such a challenge for the church. Because the rise of modernity 
happened in conjunction with the rise of cultural Christianity. And as modernity rose, the church's influence rose in the West, and it meant that their fates were, in a sense, locked together. And, and, and when society began to lose faith in, in the modern concepts of science and reason and technology, because they had been so wrapped up in the growth of Christendom, society also lost faith in Christianity. And now, 75 years later, we are seeing the results. The church no longer has power in society. We no longer have formal influence. Not only is there no longer any cultural advantage to being a Christian, but more and more identifying as a Christian has become a detriment to your reputation. You can look at, at our brothers and sisters in, in, in Europe. They're several decades ahead of us in this process, and they are feeling the effects and the reality of this post-Christian world significantly more than we are even here in the States. But here's what's happened. As secularism and the rejection of Christianity have become cultural norms, and, and that has become normative in the West, in, in Europe, in America, in the former British colonies around the world, Christians, I think, are, have been left in a state of, of shell shock. And we, and we have experienced a growing gap between Sunday and Monday. And, and our faith at times, if we're honest with ourselves, feels insignificant. It can feel irrelevant to life in a post Christian world. And, and, and we perceive this divide between our personal life, our personal faith, and our public life. Between the sacred and between the secular. And we experience this dissonance, right? This tension between our Christian existence and the reality of the world around us. And they don't often seem to fit. And it creates confusion. It creates conflict externally and internally. Now look, I'm not a historian. I'm not a sociologist. The, the analysis that I've just given you comes from this fantastic book by Paul Williams called Exiles on Mission. Exiles on Mission, how Christians can thrive in a post-Christian world. And Williams goes on to say that all of these radical shifts, the rise of secularism, the decline of the church's influence, have caused a kind of whiplash effect in the church, rattling the church and leaving us dazed reactive and in denial, always responding to events in a backward-looking mindset. And the world has gone by, and we now are whiplashed looking back, thinking, what has happened? And he rightly observes in the book that many believers in America and in other places in the West still have not come to terms with the fact that we now live in a post-Christian society. And we hark back to days where there was greater Christian influence but he says that this nostalgia makes it all the harder to live faithfully in the present, which is what God has called us to. And there are many, many things to grieve in the loss of the Christian era in the modern West, in the loss of the Christian influence in society. We've seen the rise of sin, hostility toward God, and these things should cause us to grieve. But here's the reality. Things were never perfect. Things were never perfect in the church, in America, in Europe. Nominal faith has always been a challenge. Hypocrisy, racial prejudice have often been far too common in the church. The devaluing of women, materialism in the people of God have often been the case, even at the height of the church's influence in Christendom. But either way, we cannot live with a backward-looking mindset. In the book, Paul Williams explains our dilemma like this. 
Read along with me. We live in a generation in which our elders at least can remember a time when Christianity was still a major force in our Western or Western-influenced societies. Thus, we feel its decline more acutely. Our faith is increasingly marginalized and subjected to ridicule, mockery, and disdain. Our society is dominated by cultural stories and beliefs that seem impervious to Christian faith, even a threat to it. Our science and technology, economic growth, and political processes all seem to exist and develop without the need for God. Jesus seems an embarrassment to many of us in the corporate office, school, hospital, cafe. Most of our neighbors seem ignorant of the gospel and uninterested in finding out more. Increasingly, we settle for a kind of split personality disorder. Talking and living according to one story when we're with church family and friends. And adopting a different language and lifestyle when we're not. This leaves us profoundly dissatisfied because we're not living truly integrated lives. We can't seem to be a whole person with all our beliefs, values, and passions wherever we are. Anybody identify with that? Anybody feel that tension? Friends, we have to acknowledge that there are changes in society. And we're not going to welcome them. We're not going to celebrate what is happening in our world. The rise of atheism, the negative views that are becoming more commonplace, the negative views of God and the Christian faith, they, they, they lead to potential increases in, in persecution in many, many destructive results in society. And so we're not going to welcome these changes. We're not going to celebrate them. But we are going to acknowledge and take peace and find hope in the reality that God is still sovereign, that he still has a plan for his church, for the spread of the gospel, and for the increase of his kingdom. One day when, when Jesus returns. See, the reality of, of our life in exile, in a society that rejects the Savior, in a, in a society that is hostile toward our faith, is not new. It, it's new to us, it's new to us in the modern West, but it is not new to the church. Look at what John Piper wrote for Ligonier Ministry. By, by the way, when you have to say something hard to the, to the people, you just quote from John Piper, let him say it for you. <laughs> American culture does not belong to Christians, neither in reality nor in biblical theology. It never has. The present tailspin towards Sodom is not a fall from Christian ownership. Now, what's interesting is he says the present tailspin towards Sodom. He wrote that 10 years ago. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It has since the fall and it will until Christ comes in open triumph. God's rightful ownership will be manifested in due time. However, Christians are not passive. We do not smirk at the misery or the merrymaking of immoral culture. We weep, or we should. This is my main point. Being exiles does not mean being cynical. It does not mean being indifferent or uninvolved. The salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. Where it can, it saves and seasons. Where it can't, it weeps. And the light of the world does not withdraw, saying good riddance to godless darkness. It labors to illuminate, but not dominate. Being Christian exiles in American culture does not end our influence. It takes the swagger out of it. We don't get cranky that our country has been taken away. We don't whine about the triumphs of evil. We are not hardened with anger. We understand this is not new. 
This was the way it was in the beginning. He goes on to talk about the Roman Empire and Christians that have suffered and faced persecution in the history of the church. See, we have always lived in exile, brothers and sisters. We have always lived on earth as resident aliens, foreigners in a world that is not our home. And the early Christians living in the Roman Empire, Christians today, right now, worshiping this morning in the name of Jesus in China and in the Middle East, they have always known that. And no one has to tell them that they are living in exile. And so, yes, there are many, many challenges ahead for the church in the West, some of which I I think we haven't even begun to imagine or to process But this is a new opportunity for the followers of Jesus to walk in faith, to walk in mission in our life in exile. You say, well, how are we going to do that? How will the church survive our exile? Thank God that his word speaks to us and directs us specifically in this calling. We looked last week at First Peter, written to the elect exiles scattered across the world. If you missed that first sermon, please, please go back and listen to that excellent sermon by Pastor Matt. He showed us there in First Peter chapter 2, God's will for, for our life in exile in three areas. First of all, to proclaim the excellencies of God to the world. Secondly, to fight against our spiritual passions and to live with honorable conduct before a watching world. And thirdly, to submit to the institutions of the world for the Lord's sake. This morning, I want us to turn now to John chapter 17. I hope that you have a Bible. Pull it up on your phone. Here, Jesus prays for his people in the world. Because Jesus knew the challenges, the tensions, the temptations of our life in exile. And he prayed for us. And the scriptures tell us that even now he is interceding for us. And in John 17 is where we get the familiar phrase, in the world, not of the world. This is something that I have, I have ruminated on, prayed through, thought about for years. Ever since my, my oldest son went to, to public elementary school. And I walked his little hand down to the bus stop. And I prayed for him. That God would give him strength to be in the world, not of the world. And I've done that for the last 18 years. Well, 15 years, whatever it is. I can't do the math. 13 years with all of my kids. Trying to help them understand what it means to grow up in the world, but not of the world. Praying for their protection. Praying that they would be a light. And this is Jesus' prayer for us as well. Really, John chapter 13 through 17 is a single unit. This is, the context is Jesus gathered with his disciples. He's celebrating the Passover meal, the final night on earth before his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. All that is going to happen in a few hours. Jesus has washed their feet. He's now preparing them for his death, for his resurrection, return to heaven. He spends three chapters teaching them, preparing them to carry out their mission in a hostile world through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. In, in these chapters, there's over 30 references to the world. Jesus is teaching us how we are to live in the world. And he's going to show us that it, it is to live in the world, but not of the world. Then in chapter 17, after Jesus does all of this teaching, he then prays. And from the context, we can tell he's still with the disciples. He's likely praying out loud. They're hearing him pray this for them and for every disciple to come after them. So we're going to hear now the words of our Lord Jesus. I know I've been going for a while, but I'm going to stop again and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And as we have this sacred privilege of reading it aloud in the assembly of believers, 
as our brothers and sisters are doing all over the world, we pause and we ask you to speak to us, to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that you would challenge us, encourage us, call us. God, I thank you that this prayer is not just something Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago, but he even now intercedes for us. Work among us, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And we all said, Amen. Amen. Goodness. So much to unpack. Four things I just want to draw draw your attention to as we see Jesus' prayer for us. Jesus prays to the Father. He's acknowledging that his hour has come. In other words, that he's about to, to, 
to be crucified and to go back to heaven. He's lived to glorify his Father. He says in verses 1 through 5 that he's accomplished all the work that he's been given by the Father. He's proclaimed that eternal life comes from knowing God, the only true God, and the Son he sent. Jesus knows what's about to happen, that he'll suffer and die, return to heaven. And he asked the Father to bring him back to the eternal glory that he had by the Father's side before creation. And in verses 6 to 8, Jesus prays. He says that he's revealed God the Father to all of his followers, the ones that the Father has given him out of those in the world. He says that that his followers have received the words of Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior sent from God. And in verse 9, Jesus says that he is now praying for his followers, the ones that have received him. Now it's interesting, he goes on to say that he's not praying for the world. In other words, he's not praying for every single person in the world that is cut off from God, but he's only praying for those who belong to God in terms of salvation, those whom the Father has rescued, those whom have been given, the passage says, to Jesus. Jesus prays for his disciples, for those who come after him. And the first thing that we see here in his prayer is that we belong to Jesus. And, and yes, if you're here this morning and you claim Jesus as your Savior, you received him. But you received him only because he, you were first chosen out of the world and given to Jesus by the Father. He says in verse 10, all mine are yours and all yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. You belong to Jesus. God loved you and chose you. He sent Jesus to come for you, to rescue you out of the world. The Father, the Father took you and gave you to his Son. To be among the ones who would be ransomed, who would be filled with faith, who would, who would respond and, and hold on to Jesus just as Jesus has long been holding on to you. And through his death you are now cut off and forgiven from your sin, from your selfishness, from all the ways that you're much too like the world. Those things have been put to death. And through his resurrection, the Bible says you've been filled with the very Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of Jesus now fills you, empowers you. Your old life crucified, your new life raised up given to Jesus, belonging to Him, to live out your calling here in the world. And if you don't know that reality, cry out in faith. Turn from the world and cry out. and Say, Jesus, I want to belong. I want to know You. I want to be with the Father. I want to be adopted into Your kingdom. Cry out to Him for mercy. See, we have been given to Jesus, and that means that in, in our life in the world, it means that no matter what happens, no matter how many hardships you face, no matter how many unbearable obstacles are in your way, it means that you are still His. Because the Father has given you to the Son. You belong to Him. We can rest in that, we can rejoice in that, and that can drive us and empower us to continue in this life in exile. Jesus continues in verse 11. He says that he is no longer in the world. What's happening is that his face is now turned toward heaven. He knows that he's going to be crucified, raised back to life. He knows that in a matter of weeks, he's going to... Can you imagine how excited he's going to be? How excited he would have been? Like, he gets to go back to heaven. He gets to take the flesh off. Well, he's going to, he's going to still have flesh, in a sense, in his resurrected, glorified body. But he's going to be in the glory that he had before creation. Right? But, But... He knows that his followers are going to remain in the world. And so he asks in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them. Guard them in your name. Because they're not all coming back to heaven with me. they got to stick it out here. Keep them unified as one, he says in verse 11, even as we are one. 
And so we see, secondly, the second reality as Jesus prays for us is that, is that we are guarded from evil. He says, guard them, keep them. See, sin and brokenness, rebellion, foolishness, evil, pain, they abound in this world. And you only have to live for about a day on planet Earth to figure that out. But the followers of Jesus are guarded. We are guarded from the full and final outcome of evil. Verse 13 says that he has prepared his disciples for him to return to heaven so that they can walk in complete joy. See, I love the fact that we're guarded, not like just in a cage, like miserable, stuck in a corner, but guarded. No, he says you can walk in joy, in my joy, even in this broken world. He goes on in verse 14 to say that he has given his followers the word of truth, the gospel. And what is the result? What is the result of Jesus giving his people the word of truth? The world hates them. See, by the re- receiving the word of Christ, we are born again. As I've said, we, we enter into a new kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, the kingdom of heaven. And so we are not of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. But But here's what's happening. Those who are in the world, those who do not love God, those that have not come to faith yet in Him, despite their sin, have a certain level of perception and they get the fact that we belong to God. And they recognize that there's a change that's happened in us. And they see it in individuals, Lord willing, they see it in the church. And they now see the disciples of Jesus as a hostile threat. And often the world hates Christians, hates our beliefs, hates the church. And some of you may have experienced this in small ways, in big ways, and we can look at those brothers and sisters that are even now being persecuted, being arrested, being, being beaten, some martyred for their faith. And, and, and most of what we have faced far pales in comparison, and yet we can identify those times when we have been ridiculed and we have been left out, when we have been passed over because of our faith. And it may not manifest like overt hatred. But the world is against God and his people. Now not every individual you know, walks around seething, hating Christians. But there's a disconnect. There's a conflict. Jesus said it like this a couple chapters earlier in John 15, 18. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Friends, a good leader never asks his followers to go anywhere, do anything, face anything that he himself has not already faced. And no matter what we face in this world, Jesus has faced far worse. Rejection, persecution, humiliation, physical pain, emotional pain, relational abandonment. And you may face ridicule, maybe it's just mild discomfort, maybe it's an overt form of persecution. Maybe you you have lost your reputation amongst your, your friends or your school or your work. Maybe there have been opportunities that you have missed because of how you've chosen to live your life. But through it all, Jesus says you are guarded. You are guarded from the, the ultimate manifestation and result of evil. Guarded by Jesus. And it means that you may lose the entire world. But your soul will not be lost. You'll be guarded from the evil one because you belong to Jesus. 
You know, again, we think about Christians today in, in, in communist China, in, in, in uh, Iran, where the gospel is exploding, in other countries in the Middle East that are safe, suffering persecution, that, where it's literally against the law to become a follower of Jesus. And Paul Williams, who wrote that book, has spoken with many leaders in the Middle East, and he says that those who are suffering deeply in their faith consistently have two things that they want to say to Christians in the West. And here, hear from our brothers and sisters. The first thing they say is, don't forget us. Pray for us. Speak up, they say. And there are websites and resources that you can look at to get, to get updates and, and prayer needs and, and, and to get involved in advocating for our Christian brothers and sisters that are suffering deeply. But the second thing that, that those who are being persecuted today for their faith want to say to Christians in the West is don't compromise your witness. They have not given up in the face of bloodshed, and they, they're calling us, don't compromise. Don't compromise your witness. Friends, life in exile is hard. The world hates us. The evil one is trying to devour us. But, but Jesus said, after he gave us the hard reality, he said in, in chapter 16, the last verse 33, before he prays, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And you say, but I don't see it. It doesn't look that way. It looks like the world is running further and faster away from Jesus. Jesus has promised life out of death. He's promised victory out of defeat. He has promised that he will come again and manifest what he accomplished in his death and resurrection. He has overcome the world and he will bring it to fruition. We are guarded from evil. In verse 15, he goes on and he prays not that the Father would take us out of the world, but that the Father would protect us from the influence, from the harm of evil and the evil one, Satan. Now, now I'm a little troubled by verse 15, because the fact that Jesus prays and says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, makes me think, well, well, was that, would that have been an option? Could, could he have prayed? I remember being a little kid. I'm not I'm not kidding. And I was, I, I liked to ask my Sunday school teachers questions, you know, partly because I was curious, but partly because I wanted to see if I could stump them and, you know, irritate them. I was that guy. And I remember thinking and wondering, like, why doesn't God, when, when you come to faith in Christ, instead of like, you know, going forward to pray with the pastor or being baptized or going to the membership class, why doesn't God just zap you up into heaven? Right? Like, why not just get it over with? Why not open up some kind of portal and you just zip? You just go up. As soon as you, as soon as you say, yes, Jesus, I believe, zip, you're gone. What? Why didn't he do that? Jesus says, I'm not praying to, that you would take them out of the world. And I'm sort of like, well, maybe that would have been better, Jesus, right? Like we wouldn't have had to put up with all of this. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13 to help us understand, I think, why he's left us in the world. Why his prayer is not that we'd be taken out of the world, but that we remain protected from the evil one. And, and in the parable, he says, imagine a farmer. The farmer goes out and he sows wheat seed in his field. But then later, uh, in the nighttime, an enemy comes and the enemy sows weeds into the same field. And nobody notices it until the crops start to grow. And the servants come to the, the owner of the farm one day and they say, there's a whole bunch of weeds, tares, some translations say, in our wheat field. Should we go out and pull out all the weeds? And the farmer says, no, don't do that. Let them grow together. Let the wheat and the tares grow together. Because if you go out and try to pull out and uproot all of the weeds, in the process, you may uproot the good plant and the wheat as well. And the farmer tells his servants, we're going to let them grow. We're going to let the wheat 
and the tares grow together until the harvest. And when the harvest comes, they will be pulled out, they will be divided, and, and the weeds will be burned up, and the wheat will be put into the barn. And the picture that we get of, of, of the kingdom is that those who are in the kingdom and those who are not in the kingdom grow up together, intermingled in life in the world. That is God's design. That is God's plan. And so I had the opportunity last night to, to be up in York until 10.30 at my son's basketball game. Up at the York Expo, like eight, ten courts up there, hundreds of people, all these basketball games, terrible refs, by the way. But in the process, I had an opportunity to, to, to talk and to connect with several dads, several parents. One of them, a, a, an immigrant, not from this country. One of them recently divorced. One of them that I spoke with was, was a Christian. But, but here I am, a pastor, a Christian. Probably should have been at home fine-tuning this message because now it's going to be too long. But connecting. Sharing life side by side. I mean, you, from visibly, you wouldn't have been able to tell who, who was a wheat, who was a tear. We don't even ultimately know people's eternal destination. We are not taken out of the world, and that is on purpose. That is by design. We live and we grow in the world in the same fields, the same neighborhoods, the same communities, the same schools and workplaces. And if the Lord were to pull one out, he would risk uprooting the other and so he says we're going to wait we're going to let them grow together and as we'll see in a minute this is part of god's plan and part of our mission but here's the thing even though we are intermingled with non-christians in the world we are still distinct look at verses 14 and, and 16 the same thing are said in both verses we are not of the world they are not of the world jesus says just as i am not of the world we're in the world, but not of the world. Verse 17, Jesus asked that we would be sanctified in the truth of his word. The ESV footnote says that sanctified could be translated as set apart for holy service to God. We are set apart to holy service to God by his word. Made holy by the truth of God's word. See, by God's grace, by his word, by God's spirit, evil and sin loses influence over us. We grow in humility and in holiness and in maturity. And as we believe, as we think, as we speak, and as we act according to the truth, God does his work of sanctifying us by the gospel and by every word that he has revealed to us. He says in verse 19 that for their sake, for the sake of my followers who remain in the world, Jesus says, I consecrate myself so that they can be consecrated. I'm going to set myself apart. I'm going to commit myself to holiness so that they can. See, we are only sanctified because Jesus has been. We are only made holy because Jesus has been made holy for us. And so we see thirdly this morning in this passage that we are distinct, distinct from the world, set apart for God's service by his spirit and by his word. And, and you can wonder, and again, sometimes I think, my neighbors and I have, have been out in our yards, and, and, and it's, you know, you're mowing, and, and we've been mulching, and we've been weeding, and yesterday I was, I was mere feet from, feet from my neighbors that were also weeding and planting gardens, and talking with them, and, and sometimes I sort of think, what am I doing? Why am I playing this game? Like, who cares if there's weeds growing? Why do I need to mulch? Why, you know, maybe I'll just dig up my grass and put down asphalt. Like, what is, you know, like, what is it all for, right? You sort of look around, like, What's the difference between me and my neighbor? Like, is there really any difference? Are we just living the same? And my wife and I struggle with what we call the suburban rut. Are we just in the suburban rut and playing the game and keeping it going and keeping up appearances? 
And Jesus says, no, you are distinct. And even when you're living in the same ways, Lord willing, you're doing them with different motivation, with different purposes, with different outcomes. And there are differences in lifestyle and values. We are distinct. We are not of the world, Jesus says. What does it mean? What does it mean to be not of the world? We know what it means to be in the world because we're here. What does it mean to be not of the world? It means that we have a fundamentally different nature. That's what we mean when we say we're born again. We're still human, okay? But being born again means that we're no longer defined by our earthly sinful nature. No matter how prevalent your sins may be, that no longer defines your identity. We are now defined by our heavenly spiritual nature. It means to not be of the world means that we are no longer citizens of this world, but we are now citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And so our identity is different. Our belief system is different. Our values are different. Our goals, our priorities, our desires are distinct. Our ways of thinking, our ways of of acting are, should be, can be different from the people that you sit next to in class, the people that sit in the cubicle beside you. The, the, the neighbors that you have, we are distinct. John will go on in, in, in 1 John two fifteen to 17 to, to flesh this out. And he writes this about our distinction in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And and here's the, the challenge of being in the world, not of the world, is that all the stuff around us seems so real, and it seems so important. And people, and places, and bank accounts, and vacations, and clothes, and pleasure, and money, and success, it all, it all, it's right there. It's not an illusion. It's not fake. It's not easy to ignore. But the Word of God says it's all passing away. None of it's eternal. None of it's from the Father. And there are good blessings in this world. There are good things that we can receive from, from people and, and, and from God's good creation. But we, we cannot love the world. We cannot love the things in the world the desires of our flesh, the desires of our lives, the pride that drives the people around us. It's not from the Father. So thirdly, we see that we are to be distinct from the world, but, but Jesus goes on. I'm going to wrap up with this fourth thing, and then I'm going to try, Lord willing, to, to, to close with, it, with a little uh, paradigm for us to think about. Fourthly, we are sent out into the world as one. He says in verse 18, just as the Father sent Jesus into the world, so we have been sent into the world. Man, you don't have a devotional plan you're doing. Just, just, just read verse 18 all week. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father into the world, so he sends us into the world. That is profound, right? How did the Father send Jesus into the world? Three, three quick things. I think he sent him loved, called, and equipped. Jesus came to earth to fulfill his mission rooted in the Father's love, rooted in his identity as God's Son. And he was called 
Jesus didn't come to earth like, I'm not sure what to do now. No, he had a specific mission to seek and to save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. He was loved, he was called, and he was equipped. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish what he'd been sent to do. And Jesus now says to each and every follower of his, I send you in the same way with the love of the Father, called to fulfill the mission and equipped, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says in verse 20, I'm not just praying for these 12 knucklehead disciples that are going to start the early church. He says, I'm praying this for all of my followers. Anyone who will believe in me through the gospel that these apostles proclaim. And he says in verse 21, my prayer is that all of my fathers are going to be united perfectly as one body, joined in unity with the Father, with the Son, and by extension I would add, with the Spirit. And so he says in verses 22 and 23 that his prayer is that we would be perfectly united as one body so that the world would see Christians and see that we have the love of God and would believe. They would see us and they would believe that Jesus must be the Messiah. Look at those people. There is no other explanation for their love and their care and their unity and their humility. Their their Savior must be real. That's what Jesus says the world will see. We are sent into the world, sent as one. Why has God left us to live this life in exile? Because we have a mission. To live for Christ, to represent Christ, to speak for Christ, to be a light to a dark world, to draw people to Him. But this is not a mission that you can do alone. We must be united as one body. One body here at Living Hope Church with Christ as our head. True for every local church, and by His grace and by His sovereign work, true for the universal church. See, our unity is not only what empowers us to live on mission, but the display of Christian unity will be a profound witness to a splintered and divided world. God help us, God forgive us for all the ways that we have been divided, for all the ways that we have hung on to our differences and not found hope in the unity of Christ. And so if we're going to be faithful to live in exile, to live out our call to be in the world, not of the world, it is essential that we remember how Jesus prayed for us, that we know he is praying for us now, that we would walk in the reality that we belong to Jesus, that we are guarded from evil, that we are distinct from the world, and that we are sent into the world as one. And some of you are like, yeah, but what about all of that historical, sociological commentary you gave at the beginning? What about all of the challenges? What about all the hardships? What about everything going on in our culture right now? How are we practically going to do this? It looks good, you know, sitting in church, reading the Bible. But we are foreigners. We are aliens. We do live as strangers and exiles. How are we going to live? And there's this conflict. There's this tension that is stirred up. And I think the tension leads to two main temptations. Either we have to assimilate or we have to withdraw. And, and we buy all this. We believe all this. We love all this. And we say, but, but, I, but I still, I'm either going to have to assimilate into the world and just become like the world or I'm going to have to withdraw. And Jesus says, no, in the world, not of the world. We have to do both. And so I, I want to look briefly at four main approaches, and, and, and um, we'll have to just unpack this more next week. But um, for those of you like-minded brothers and sisters out there, I got a chart for you. So here's my chart. 
four approaches, four main approaches, I think, to how we are going to battle the temptation to withdraw and the t- temptation to assimilate. And, and, and I'm going to go through these quickly. They're, they're, uh, there's a PDF on the sermon page today. There's a few handouts on the offering table there if you can't read it or if you want a copy. So don't, don't feel the need to scribble it down. You can download it this week. And, and, and as I go through these, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Tim, you're exaggerating. These are stereotypes. Yes, I'm exaggerating and I'm making stereotypes to try to help prove the point, okay? The, fir- the first way to approach this is, is to just try to live as an integrated citizen, to just say, I want to belong. You can put up that next column. Just say, I, I want to belong. I want to be an integrated citizen. And so your approach is to assimilate and conform. Your strategy is, I'm just going to adapt any way that I can. I'm going to compromise any way that I can. How, how do you live in terms of your public and private light, life? Well, you just separate. You say, my private life is sacred. My public life is secular. And you make this distinction. And when you're in public, you hide your faith. And what drives this type of posture or the desire for acceptance? I think ultimately cowardice and faithlessness. How does somebody that takes this approach view the church? The church for you, for those of us that that tend to assimilate, the church just becomes a personal retreat. It's like a day spa. Doesn't really impact much, but I go there and it makes me feel good. For those that have chosen to assimilate, the message to the world is just, hey, I'm a Christian, you can be whatever you want to each his own. And we can talk more next week about the, the obvious challenges and shortcomings of this. And you might be able to assimilate, assimilate for a time. But eventually your faith will erode. Eventually you cannot hold on to your Christian identity. I think the second approach is to just live as what I call a displaced defender. The person who says, this is my world. I've been displaced and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack to do whatever I can. And attack the godless institutions and recapture what rightfully belongs to Christians. And so the strategy at times is a tactical withdrawal, right? And that's a military strategy. If you're being overpowered, sometimes Christians say, look, we just need to withdraw. We need to build a trench. We need to bunker down and wait for an opportunity to strike back. And the emphasis becomes the public sphere. And the public sphere is seen as the only platform to advance the kingdom. But ultimately, and again, this isn't perhaps an exaggerated stereotype, but there are some that slip into anger, resentment, a sense of entitlement, and they forget the reality that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And, and they view the church as a battle station, or like I said, a trench. And, and we got we to withdraw, dig a trench, and, and, and sort of hold our ground and wait for a chance to strike and take the world back. And there are various cultural issues where our instinct is to go into fight mode. And Christians should care deeply about many, many issues. But what's your motivation? Are you motivated by a sense of entitlement, by anger? Is your priority to force external obedience? Or is your priority the gospel and the hope of Christ? And we can and should have a role in the public sphere, but there's a right way and a wrong way to approach it. Thirdly, some some live life like a visiting outsider and they say, you know what? I don't want to assimilate. I don't want to be a citizen of this world. In fact, I don't even want to live here. I'm just a visitor and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pull back and live as an outsider. I'm gonna withdraw, I'm gonna abandon society, and, and their desire is to just preserve their own purity, to huddle up and just we're gonna wait it out, wait it out for Jesus to return. And instead of overemphasizing the public sphere, I think many tend to overemphasize the private sphere. And say, look, all that matters is personal purity. 
But friends, we have to remember that, that we need to interact with the world. If we're going to be pure, if we're going to be holy, and I think oftentimes we can be driven by fear, fear of sin, fear of sinners, by a desire to self-preserve, by a detachment from the lost people in the world. And so the church just becomes a bunker, just becomes a, a shelter to hide and wait for Jesus to return. And, and, and the message that we can sometimes give to the world is stay away. But we're going to talk more next week about this fourth approach to live as a faithful ambassador. Friends, we can look at one another and judge one another and we can say, well, this person's a sellout or those people are just gathered in their holy huddle. And depending upon your mood, your mood, or depending upon your day, if you're like me, you might oscillate between all three of these different positions. But there's a fourth way. It's to live as a faithful ambassador. Next week, we're going to look at the life of Daniel. Read the first three chapters of Daniel this week. Read Jeremiah 29. We're going to look at a man who lived as a faithful ambassador, who invested in society, who engaged the world while holding on to his convictions without compromise. And we too are called to live in the tension of private faith and our public calling, to live in faith and courage in compassion. And the church is, is not a shelter, it's not a battle station, it ultimately becomes an embassy. And the ambassadors come and connect with the homeland and we work and we train. The church becomes a, a missional outpost, a piece of the kingdom to take out to the world. And so we'll talk about how we need to be willing to adapt to culture in any way that doesn't cause compromise, how we need to stay engaged in public life, and we need to be willing to address social issues, and we do need to protect our personal faith and maintain purity. You say, who can live like this? It's not just Daniel. It's all men and women filled with the Holy Spirit. So friends, as the worship team comes, for those of you that feel overwhelmed, stick with us two more weeks. We're going to unpack these concepts. We're going to unpack, continue to unpack what it means to live in exile, what it means to live in the world, not of the world. We're going to close with a worship song and remind ourselves of who Christ is, of our life in Him. And as we prepare to worship again, I think that the big question that I want to close us with as we face these challenges, as we face these tensions, as you feel inadequate, as you feel overwhelmed, as you want to go into battle mode, as you want to to hide in the bunker, the question is... Are we confident in the power of the gospel? Do we believe that Jesus is the only hope for salvation? Do we believe that God is sovereign not only in Jerusalem, but that He is sovereign in Babylon? Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So let's stand together and worship the God of this great gospel. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for the hard reality that you have left us in the world. Fill us with your spirit to to walk in the world in faithfulness and to not be of the world. Give us grace to resist the temptation to assimilate, to resist the temptation to withdraw, to be faithful, to be unified as one, to be sure in our identity that we belong to you, to rest that we are guarded from evil. Fill us with your spirit as we and every son and every daughter across the world walk out this calling. We trust you. We trust you to lead us, to fill us, to accomplish your purpose in us personally, in your church corporately, and in every place of the world. Hear us now as we worship.